Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, episode 4.12, Letters from a Pennsylvania Farmer. The colonial response to the Townsend Acts had been far more moderate than the response had been to the Stamp Act. Few effigies were burnt, there were not riots in the streets, and nobody had their house torn down brick by brick. Rather, a mixture of general fatigue seemed to have settled in. This really is not all that surprising either. Beginning as early as 1763, the colonists had been butting heads with the British Empire as a whole. That situation grew monumentally during the summer of 1765 and 1766, as often violent reactions to the Stamp Act spread throughout the colonies. Even following the repeal of the Stamp Act, there remained significant resistance towards British policy, especially in New York when it came to the question of quartering troops. Needless to say, the amount of energy that it took to sustain such a resistance was considerable. As it stood in the fall of 1767, as news of the Townsend Acts trickled into the colonies, the response was more of a whimper than anything else. In Massachusetts, for example, Attempts at a non-importation agreement fell short. Rather, the only thing that could be agreed upon was a decision to reduce consumption on certain goods, which would have no meaningful effect on anything. Of course, we know that the imperial crisis isn't over. In fact, it is really just ramping up at this point. Today, we are going to look beyond the initial response to the Townsend Acts. And specifically, we are going to discuss what exactly shook the colonies out of their apparent malaise. The pivotal moment that would begin to wake the colonists up came in the form of a series of publications that were released between December 1767 and April 1768. Written by John Dickinson, letters from a Pennsylvania farmer to the inhabitants of the British colonies would become one of the most critical works during the entire imperial crisis. It has been argued that the letters from a Pennsylvania farmer would prove to be the most important work of the era, right up until the publication of Thomas Paine's Common Sense. We have met Dickinson before, actually a few times now. We first discussed him back during our episode on the French and Indian War, as his writings give us some insight into the colonists' view towards Lord Loudon. We saw him again recently with respect to the Stamp Act. Dickinson was a member of the Stamp Act Congress and likewise may well have been the one who drafted the Congress's official declaration. Dickinson is going to remain in our story for quite a while as well. We are going to see him eventually become the voice of moderation. It is this moderation that is going to come to define Dickinson's reputation. The prominent historian of the early republic. Bernard Balin, describes Dickinson as being the most cautious and reluctant of revolutionary leaders. This is not to say that Dickinson is going to be a loyalist. He absolutely isn't. But he will earn a reputation for telling everybody that it might be a good idea to pump the brakes. Eventually, this is going to manifest with Dickinson writing the Olive Branch Petition and then eventually standing opposed to the Declaration of Independence. Although this is something that we are going to talk about in much more detail down the road, 
I do want to note for right now that Dickinson's objection to declaring independence was based more upon timing and other practicalities, rather than an outright objection to the premise of independence. This is all going to be a major topic down the road a bit further for us, however. The real reason that I wanted to lay this all out here today is that Dickinson is going to become something of a voice of the more moderate positions. And that is going to begin right here in 1767. Before we move forward, we probably also need to address the fact that John Dickinson was not exactly the farmer that somebody writing a series of articles entitled Letters from a Pennsylvania Farmer would lead you to believe. Dickinson, born in 1732 Maryland, was the son of a lawyer. Following a move to Delaware, he would receive a classical education. Though his father was technically a planter and actually did own an extensive estate, he did very little actual work on the plantation itself, practicing law instead. The farm itself was worked by a large number of slaves, slaves that Dickinson would ultimately end up freeing. Following his education in Delaware, Dickinson would travel to London where he studied the law. This is where we first ran into him, as he reported on the feelings on the North American theater of the Seven Years' War from his position in London. Following his legal training, Dickinson returned to Philadelphia, where he would run a very successful law practice. What really makes the letters from a farmer unique is that it is shockingly mild, yet still a very effective polemic. If you are looking for a vitriolic attack on British imperial policy, this is going to be disappointingly mild for you. This is in some ways counterintuitive to our commonly held feelings towards the era. When we think of political pamphlets during the imperial crisis and moving into the American Revolution, we often think of things like common sense, pamphlets that are inflammatory and are designed specifically to get the populace riled up. What makes the letters from a farmer so effective, though, is the fact that it strikes a calm and measured tone. What Dickinson does so well in his letters from a farmer is that he reads the mood of the colonies. People were tired. The amount of energy that it was taking to maintain the resistance to British policy was considerable. Dickinson struck in a tone that was gentle and calm. He was making calm calls for petitions at home, increasing the manufacturing inside the colonies to cut down on the need from imports from London. Nothing about what he was asking was excessive, nor was it something that would be balked at by an already exhausted populace. If you are looking for a call for mobs to take to the streets, this is not it. The letters from a Pennsylvania farmer were well-received and published widely throughout the colonies as well as across the ocean in Britain and beyond. Benjamin Franklin, who turned out to be a fan of the letters, would help push them beyond London and had them published in Paris. In striking such a moderate and at times outright mild tone, Dickinson managed to extend the appearance of his letters to a much broader audience. There was a fatigue towards the unexpectedly extreme actions of the summer of 65. 
Certainly, there was a number of colonists who, well, supportive of the general principles of the arguments, were shoved to the margins by a movement that had simply moved too far. This group, while objecting to the premises of the acts themselves, were just not going to get on board with the violent uprisings that we saw throughout that summer. Dickinson did spend significant amounts of time refuting that there were any meaningful differences between the Stamp Act and the Townsend Acts. At least for a little while longer, there is going to be this argument between external and internal taxes. Dickinson pointed out that the Townsend Acts are just as harmful and just as much of an affront to their rights as the Stamp Act had been. Dickinson writes in the first letter that, With a good deal of surprise, I have observed that little notice has been taken of an act of Parliament, as injurious in its principles to the liberty of these colonies as the Stamp Act was. I mean the act for suspending the legislation of New York. Right at the very beginning of his first letter, Dickinson lets his surprise be known at the complete lack of a response to the Townsend Acts. He likewise uses the opportunity to link the Townsend Acts to the Stamp Act. During the second letter, Dickinson cuts more directly to the biggest question, that of taxation. While the suspension of the New York Assembly was certainly concerning, especially when considering the precedent that it may set, it was not lost on Dickinson that the quickest path to a response was going to come by addressing the question of additional duties. To that, Dickinson would state, What is the difference in substance and right? Whether the same sum is raised upon us by the rates mentioned in the Stamp Act, on the use of paper, or by these duties on the importation of it. It is only the addition of a former book shifting the sentence from the end to the beginning. Once again, the choice of wording by Dickinson makes clear that the Townsend duties really are the exact same thing as the much-hated Stamp Act. If, therefore, the Stamp Act was pernicious to freedom, the Townsend Acts should be viewed in the exact same light. He further highlights that the British restriction on colonial manufacturing forced the colonists to import goods from Great Britain. Dickinson concedes the point made by William Pitt that London had the right to control colonial manufacturing and pass any such restrictions. However, a limit existed when it came to taking money out of their pockets without their consent. The major point in the second letter is a direct call for the colonists and the assemblies to wake up to this very direct assault on their liberty. Dickinson makes clear that this is a slippery slope and that a failure to respond would be tantamount to setting the precedent that Great Britain could pass any taxes on them with near impunity in the future. Dickinson summarizes his main argument by saying that the only question is if Britain can, for the sole purpose of raising revenue, impose duties on commodities that the colonists can only obtain from Britain itself. He states that a failure to act gives Parliament the power to legally take money out of their pockets without their consent. Dickinson concludes by warning that if this is true, then their liberty is nothing more than a mere sound. Dickinson was well aware of the reluctance of the colonists 
to repeat the summer of 1765. Nobody wanted to go down that path again. In order to quell these fears, Dickinson writes that he understands the apprehensiveness of the colonists at the idea of riots. However, he reassures them that their grievances can be addressed without the need for rioting. We already know this to be true as well. Recall that the downfall of the Stamp Act was much more about pressure being exerted from the worried merchants in London than it was anything else. Dickinson quickly explains that the point of these letters is to bring the people to a peaceful action. He had no interest in a violent uprising and recognized the dangers that are associated with such acts. The position here taken is one of moderation. He writes that all governments make mistakes and pass bad laws. When this happens, you don't just throw off the relationship. Rather, you allow a chance for a corrective action to take place. Passions should be given a chance to cool off before anything too dramatic happens. And you should just store this bit away as we move forward. It is interesting to note that there are at least some signs that Dickinson, though certainly not supporting it necessarily, may have been concerned with a growing independence movement as early as 1768 though it certainly would have been a nascent movement if it existed at all at that point. It is likewise interesting that Dickinson does not totally shut the door on the occasional necessity of violence, though, again, he is not advocating for it. It seems more of a defense of the colonists' actions during the Stamp Act than anything else. Though, just as quick as he puts it out there, he quickly walks back to stating, that when appeals are made to the sword, such actions often carry punishments that are disproportionate to the original offense. Later in that same letter, Dickinson does again urge great caution when approaching the issue to avoid a more serious rift, again indicating that he may have been thinking along the lines of at least a possible civil war. In what may be the most famous quote from the entire work, Dickinson states that, let us behave like dutiful children who have received an unmerited blow from a beloved parent. Let us complain to our parent, but let our complaints speak at the same time to the language of affliction and veneration. From this, we learn that Dickinson views remonstrances as being the first line of defense. However, it is not lost upon him that this may not go far enough and that angry letters back to London may not achieve the desired ends. Dickinson would therefore end the third letter by laying out that it may well be necessary to strike back at Britain through something loosely along the lines of non-importation agreements. He argues that such agreements to deny Britain all the advantages that she has been used to receiving from us would provide valuable reinforcement for those protests over the Townsend duties. Critically, Dickinson never outright calls for non-importation, but rather approaches the subject through a cautious suggestion that the colonists should deny the British those above-mentioned advantages through their integrity, industry, and frugality. To this point, I have talked exclusively about those first three letters. 
the entire essay is 12 total letters, though the final eight are geared more towards defending and furthering the positions established during those first three. I'm not going to go through all the letters, because that would take more time than we have here. And really, the point thus far has been to frame the arguments as a backdrop for the colonial response. However, I do want to mention something from the fourth letter. In that letter, Dickinson would make the bold assertion that internal versus external taxation really does not matter. Dickinson makes a total denial of the power of Parliament to place any taxes upon the colonies. He does clarify that Britain does have a right to control trade. Britain can pass acts that limit how the colonies acquire property. However, that is pretty much the limit. Anything going further than that is akin to acting with the express purpose of raising revenue rather than controlling trade. There is no ambiguity in Dickinson's writings that the Townsend Acts are attempts to squeeze revenue out of the colonists rather than being an attempt to control trade. As such, they should be resisted as Parliament lacked the power to raise revenue off the backs of colonists without representation. We are at the point on this podcast where terms like internal and external taxation still do carry some meaning for the colonists. As we move forward, however, we are going to see that this issue pretty much fades out of the discussion, especially as we approach the 1770s. As that issue between internal and external taxes fades, we see that the discussion moves in the direction of natural rights. In the letters from a farmer, Dickinson is already moving in a direction of minimizing the differences between internal and external taxation and focusing his arguments against taxation in more general terms. I would also be remiss if I failed to ever bring up the conspiracy aspect of all of this, a conspiracy theory that was alive and well within Dickinson's works. Conspiracy theories were nothing abnormal during the 18th century, and certainly did not carry around the connotations that they regularly have today. Believing that some grand conspiracy was afoot to deprive you of your life, liberty, and property was just what people in the 18th century did. We have already seen this come up. If you think back to the New York slave conspiracy of 1741, nobody had any problem believing in first a slave, and then later a Spanish conspiracy, being planned that would undermine the colony. True or not, both colonists and Europeans alike were quick to accept conspiracy theories, when oftentimes the actual cause of their dismay was far less dramatic. Dickinson, in the 11th letter, addresses a general history of Charles I. Drain this. It is interesting to note that Dickinson does not treat the actions of Charles I to be a series of pragmatic decisions at the time for some valid underlying reason. But rather, each step was taken with the deliberate intention of curtailing constitutional rights. Throughout the entire imperial crisis, there was a major question being asked about the motivations of the British. Dickinson, along with others, often viewed the modus of the British as taking a series of small steps towards the ultimate goal of oppression. In other words, 
Sure, the duties associated with the Townsend Acts may be relatively small. However, those minor duties were part of a much larger ploy on the part of the British to circumscribe American liberty. Following the publication of letters from a Pennsylvania farmer, is it safe to say that people rushed out into the streets to denounce the Townsend Acts? Well, no, not really. No matter how you look at the response to the Townsend Acts, it is always going to be a slow burn. Within the American colonies, the letters resonated with large swaths of the population that had been otherwise turned off from the events that occurred during the summer of 1765. Dickinson provided a far more measured response. Unsurprisingly, across the Atlantic, they failed to receive such a warm welcome. Although there was a collective sigh of relief in London towards the reaction of the Americans towards the Townsend duties, Dickinson's writings did not fly completely under the radar. Leading the opposition against Dickinson back in London was the controversy between Great Britain and her colonies reviewed by William Knox. The focus for Knox was on the colonial relationship towards Parliament. Knox was not having any argument as to the distinction between internal and external taxation. He pointed out that forcing the colonists to pay such duties was not tantamount to tyranny, and is in fact something that the British citizens were long expected to pay. Knox would propose the question, albeit rhetorically, as to whether or not Parliament held full authority over the colonists, and stated that if they didn't, then it must be asked if the colonies were indeed even part of the greater empire. We know, because we have a few hundred years of hindsight, that in fact this is going to become the ultimate conclusion of the colonists, that they were indeed not part of the empire, and that independence was necessary. However, it is important to keep in mind that in 1768, such beliefs really did not yet exist in America. Even amongst the most radical Americans, there was no meaningful independence movement at this point. Even earlier today when I mentioned that Dickinson seems to have had some concern about it in his earlier letters. That is not to say that he was aware of a greater independence movement. More so that he thought that the winds might eventually blow in that direction, not that they were currently blowing in that direction. In fact, it was oftentimes the British back in London who were speaking openly about the risk of the colonies seeking independence. Knox argued that the only purpose for the letters from a farmer was to excite resentment between the colonies and Great Britain. As to the prior point, Knox warns that, based upon his writings, Dickinson was encouraging the colonies towards a separation from Britain. Ironically, this is about as far from the truth as you can get when it comes to John Dickinson. As we talked about earlier today, John Dickinson really is the voice of moderation throughout the imperial crisis and then moving into the revolution itself. This, however, strikes at the core of another one of the truths of the entire ongoing affair. Those back in Britain writing about the crisis were just as likely to read far too much into events back in the colonies. As I said just a moment ago, in 1768, there is far more fear in Britain regarding a potential separation 
than there is in reality any actual American independence movement. By the time we get into 1768, some in the colonies had begun considering the potential contradictions that Knox was talking about. Among those who had really begun to question the fundamental relationship between the colonies and Parliament was Benjamin Franklin. Franklin, as we know by this point, has spent the entire imperial crisis living in London. He had been called upon, more than once, to speak on behalf of the colonies to Parliament. Franklin had, to this point, leaned hard into the old arguments, those that look at questions of internal versus external taxation, as well as the ability of Parliament to regulate trade. The crux of the problem was that Franklin felt that Dickinson's argument, the one that Parliament could control trade, was open to challenge the same as anything else. What Benjamin Franklin was asking here is whether or not the colonists could pick and choose powers that Parliament had over them. It is here where Franklin begins to personally break with Dickinson. Franklin had come to question Dickinson's assertion that Parliament had a right to control trade, but lacked a right to levy internal taxation. For Franklin, he has started to move towards the conclusion that Parliament either had the right to make all the laws for the colonies, or none of the laws for the colonies. Franklin made his position clear, stating that he believed there to be far more arguments, and indeed better arguments, that Parliament lacked the ability to make any laws for the colonies, as opposed to the position that Parliament had the right to make all the laws for the colonies. Well, the British were busy lambasting Dickinson's writings in London, and Benjamin Franklin came to question whether Parliament held any sovereignty over the colonies at all. Back in the colonies, slowly but surely, the malaise of the previous fall began to wane. As you would expect, we are going to be spending significant time on their response. However, I'm going to pause on that subject until next week. To finish up for this week, it is time to introduce a new player into our story. Welcome to the grand stage, Lord North. If you will recall from our last episode, right as Charles Townsend was establishing himself as the most powerful member of the Pitt Ministry, he up and died. Even prior to his death, the ascended Townsend was not without his detractors. Among the most vocal detractors of Townsend was the annoyingly aloof William Pitt. During March 1767, so right around the same time that Townsend was wrapping up his plan for how to deal with the American colonies, Pitt attempted to replace him as Minister of the Exchequer with Lord North. Frederick North had first emerged on the scene as a member of the House of Commons in 1754. Just 22 years of age at the time, North was considered a perfectly fine, though unremarkable, guy. He would spend several years as a junior official in the Treasury, where he earned himself a reputation for being serious and thoughtful, though still unremarkable. As it would turn out, the political winds would shift towards North largely because he was indeed so completely unremarkable. Conveniently for North, the fact that he had done little of consequence to this point in his career meant that he really had not built up a long list of enemies. This is not to say that there were no controversial moments in his career. North had been one of the votes against the repeal of the Stamp Act, 
though, apparently felt no fallout from this decision. When the Rockingham Ministry had collapsed and was replaced by the Pitt Ministry, North became a joint paymaster of the armed forces, a far more substantial post than he had ever held previously. When approached by Pitt that March to see if he was interested in the job of becoming the Chancellor of the Exchequer, he declined the promotion. However, with the death of Townsend in September of that same year, no longer was there anything standing in the way of North, who, when asked by Pitt again to join as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, he accepted the very considerable promotion. As it would turn out, becoming the Chancellor of the Exchequer was just one of the many substantial accomplishments in Lord North's career. To pair with his new and powerful position inside the ministry, in January 1768, North became the leader of the House of Commons. Up until that point, the Commons had been controlled by Henry Seymour Conway. Conway had come into the job during the Rockingham ministry and, critically, took a moderate approach towards the American colonies. He had, unlike Lord North, voted to repeal the Stamp Act. Furthermore, Conway had opposed Townsend in his actions against the colonies. Going back to the debates over the repeal of the Stamp Act, Conway had not just simply voted for repeal, but had indeed emerged as one of the most vocal opponents against it. He had proclaimed that enforcement of the Stamp Act would lead to a war in America, and that the cost of such a war, especially considering that the French and Spanish were going to be quick to jump in on the action, would lead both the Americans and the British towards a catastrophe. These comments would lead to a contentious showdown between Conway and then Grenville, who was desperately trying to salvage his work. The reason why we are turning back towards the debate on the Stamp Act is because that it shows that absolutely nothing happening here is going to prove good for the American colonists. Whether or not the Americans knew it, Conway was about the closest thing to a friend that they were going to get. Did he believe in parliamentary supremacy? Of course he did. In a perfect world, did he want to extract revenue from the American colonists? It seems pretty likely that he did. Did Conway understand the political risks that were associated with attempting to extract said revenue from the colonists? Critically, the answer here is a definitive yes. Drain that fight over the repeal of the Stamp Act, Conway basically laid out that any attempt to get revenue from the colonists came at such a high cost that it simply was not worth it. Conway might not have been out there helping tear down Thomas Hutchinson's house, but pragmatically, his loss was a devastating blow for the colonists. In fact, as a whole, the entire British cabinet had taken a distressing move away from the position of the colonists. Among the shuffle of the new ministers coming in and out, the colonies also saw a major organizational change. Traditionally under the purview of the Secretary of State of the Northern Department, the colonies were moved to a new department entirely, under the control of a new Secretary of State. The new Secretary of State over the colonies was the Earl of Hillsborough. Hillsborough had been the President of the Board of Trade under Grenville. Several old members of the Grenville Ministry moved back into a position of power in 1768. Unfortunately for the colonies, most of them fell far more in line with the Grenville camp 
than they did either Pitt or Grafton. Well, it is worth at least mentioning that this was not immediately noticeable in 1768. There were indeed some very concerning clues for what was coming in the future. Among the biggest of these clues was Lord North himself voting against the repeal of the Stamp Act. Hillsborough had likewise given a few clues as to his feelings about the Americans. During a conversation with Benjamin Franklin about Dickinson's letters from a farmer, Hillsborough had mentioned that while the piece was well-written and well-argued, it contained extremist ideas. John Dickinson was no radical, and the fact that Hillsborough took the work to be extremist was a very ill omen for the Americans. Although it is going to take some time for the reality to be fully realized, 1768 saw moves in the British ministry that shifted the entire cabinet into a position that was ready to take a far stronger stand on the American colonists than what we have seen so far. This coming hardline approach is going to color events through the remainder of the 1760s and right into the tumults of the 1770s. Dickinson's letters from a farmer would prove to be one of the most important tracts written during the imperial crisis. John Dickinson would emerge in all of this as a voice of moderation, encouraging the colonists to restrain themselves from their most radical inclinations. While the same message would have likely been drowned out back in 1765, the colonists were exhausted by the upheavals and Dickinson's writings struck the right mood at the right time. Yet, even as the letters from a Pennsylvania farmer were spreading, storm clouds were continuing to gather in the British government. A group that was far less friendly to the American cause was moving into power. As we are going to see in the coming weeks and months, this is going to have long-reaching implications that will help steer the crisis into a new and more dangerous direction. Next time, we are going to return to the colonies as everybody begins to shed that collective malaise that had settled upon them. The colonists were not going to stand quietly on the town's index forever. Next time, we will see exactly how they plan to respond. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you here next time as the colonists start getting their act together in denouncing the Townsend Acts. <laughs>